Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be here this morning. You've given us life and breath, life and breath physically, that you have given us that kind of grace, uh, but also the life and breath that we have in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we come to read your word, uh, help us to recognize that this is unlike any other kind of study of a book or study of a piece of literature, but as we come as men to read your word, that you are spiritually present here, that your Holy Spirit is here, and that your Son, the Word, is here, and that we are, now as we interact and read the very Word that you have for us, we will be changed. Not because we're smarter, not because we're becoming more theologically astute, but because your Word is living and active, and it cuts us to the heart and it is working the gospel into us. We pray nothing less than that this morning, that we would be transformed and changed as we read your word together, that you would give us a greater vision of your generous grace for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've been with us before through uh, our Tuesday morning men's Bible study, you know, each semester we have a theme together. And our goal is a couple things with this study. I already told you one of those. It's not that you would just listen to a pastor like me teach, but that you would really then go into small groups and really apply the Word of God together. But the other goal is that you would then take that with you wherever you're going from here. And not just today on a Tuesday. I've no doubt that most of you are going to work. Some of you guys are going to study. Uh, with school, and um, there's everything in between, that you would then take that with you, not on a Tuesday, but throughout the week. And in order to do that, what that means is that um, what we do not want for you is that you would have a vicarious spirituality. What do I mean by that? Uh, That you would have your spiritual life with Christ lived vicariously through somebody like me or through the men at your table but that you would begin to recognize and realize what it means to read the Word of God for yourself. And so last semester, if you were with us, we studied Christ in the Old Testament. I know for a lot of you guys, that was a totally new concept, that you could read the Old Testament and see Jesus there. Or our hope now is that when you go and read the Old Testament for yourself, on your own, you can do the same thing. You don't need a guy like me or even a table discussion to help you see that Christ is there. This morning, we're embarking on a new journey, not through all of, say, the Old Testament or a theme or even a narrative. We're looking at one of Paul's letters, his letter to the Ephesian church. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that he was a pastor first. He was a church planter. He was a missionary. And so anytime that you read one of his letters in the New Testament, and there are many, what you are reading is a pastoral letter. So as we approach Ephesians, we're going to see all kinds of big theological words, and we're going to be challenged with our minds as well as our hearts. But what you have to understand is that Paul did not sit down to write Ephesians like a seminary student or a professor sits down to write a theological paper. In other words, he didn't write Ephesians because one day he was like, you know, I just really need to record some doctrine today. Now, the reason why he wrote Ephesians is he's writing as a pastor in a particular time to a particular church, the Ephesian church, to try to help them understand some truth about God so that they would be changed. 
that they would be transformed. That is what our desire is for you this semester, that as we approach the, uh, the letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we would learn something more of who God is for us and then what that means for us. And if there's a theme, this would be the theme. And you see it here, generous God, generous church. Ephesians is six chapters. You can think about it in really two halves. The first three chapters are all about God's generous grace being poured out on us. The last three chapters are all about what does that mean for our lives? How does being marked as believers in Jesus Christ, what does it mean to be marked by his generous grace? And how does that change the way that we live, change our understanding of morality, but also change the way that we treat one another, change the way that we lead our homes and our households, change the way that we go to work? In other words, God's generous grace lived through us. What does that look like? And as you'll see, reading a letter like this, each, um, each lesson builds upon the other. So last, last semester, as we went through Christ's Old Testament, each lesson kind of stood on its own. This semester, we're reading a letter. And it's very artificial what we're going to be doing today. I'm cutting us off at verse 14. But that's not how it was originally read, right? It was, you read the whole thing. So here's what I want to say. I have no doubt you're going to miss one of these lessons. I know that. Do me a favor and go back and listen to the lesson before. Do everything you can to keep up. If you can't listen to the lesson before, at least read the passage from the week before. Do that on your own so that you're really keeping up because what we're going to do is we're each week, yes, we're going to highlight a specific thing, but Paul's building an argument, and you're going to see how intricate this really is. So I'm going to give you homework, okay? I've never done this before. We try to make this very non-committal, right? But I think you guys can handle this. Here's what I want you to do. Between now and next week, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to read the book of Ephesians in one sitting. You think, oh, no, that seems so It's not long. It's six chapters. It's taking less than 10 minutes. That's how it was designed, I mean, to, to read out loud to the Ephesian church. Read it in one sitting, the whole thing. So you begin to see the context of what Paul is trying to do. For this morning, this is how I want to begin. Here's how I'd like to begin, and then we'll go to our tables. Do you believe in fate? Do you believe in destiny? The ancient Greeks talked about fate in this way, that fate, everything, uh, everything was predetermined. And that's where we get the word fatalism from. A fatalist is somebody who thinks that, look, um, everything uh, that we have in existence has already been determined, and so you know what? Why even bother? Right, don't, don't even bother with you know, exercising your own free will or idea of control. or Why even try? Because, look, everything has been fated. Everything has been determined. Everything has been destined. And from that idea, the Greeks, an idea of fatalism, and for them it was the idea that everything's determined by the gods, right? You have just various ideas and different philosophies that have kind of splintered off of that, that have really kind of gotten into our thinking as human beings now, even in the 21st century West. It's the idea of having a fortune teller, right? Or a horoscope. Uh, it's all built around this idea of fate, that, that our fate is written in the stars. Okay, that's, that's one extreme. The other extreme says, I determine my own fate. That there is nothing out there that can determine who I am or what I do, right? I am I'm a man, 
and, and what I say goes and I have the ability to kind of determine my own path in life. On the religious side, you see this, uh, those two extremes kind of sprinkle into religions. For example, Islam teaches that Allah, right, his will is supreme and that there is nothing anyone can do to thwart that will and that essentially the followers of Allah believe that, look, everything's predetermined. Everything is fated. On the opposite side, uh, many uh, New Age ideas have to do with you kind of controlling your own destiny, right? grabbing hold of your own destiny, right? choosing your own adventure, really going out there and charging after life. And so the, my question for you this morning is where do you fall? Not just um, philosophically, because you probably don't just sit around and think about that all day. Maybe some of you do, but I doubt most of you do. But practically, how do you go about living your life? Do you believe in fate? Or do you believe in absolute free will? What I want you to see this morning is I think the Bible actually teaches neither of those things. That as believers, as we read the word of God, what we see is not fate and not absolute free will, but what we see is the will of God. And that God's will for us is not some kind of cosmic plan that is just out there in the sky that is cold and calculated, that makes us now um, fatalists, thinking, well, why even bother try to do anything if it's already determined? Because God's will for us is relation. God's will for us, his plan for us, is lived out through the context of relationship. So we believe in this God who is sovereign over all things, created all things, is sustaining all things, and has planned all things but he's doing that as a relational God with a bunch of human beings who on this side of heaven feel a certain sense of freedom. Freedom to sin, right? Freedom to sin and freedom to act and choose. All the while God is at work with his sovereign plan working through us relationally, leading us, changing us, conforming us, all according to his plan. So this morning, we're looking at God's plan. What's God's plan for your life? Have you ever wondered that? If there is a God and he does have a plan, then what's his plan? And people all the time try to figure that out. They try to, you know, almost like going to a fortune teller or a horoscope. What is God's plan for my life? Well, this morning, I'm going to tell you what God's plan is for your life. You want to know? God's plan is to lavish you with his generous grace. That's his plan. God's plan is to unite all things to himself so that he can lavish, lavish all things with his generous grace. We're going to see this in three ways this morning. The first, very quickly, is this. His plan is to bless us. So I want you, we're going to begin in verse 3 this morning for the sake of time. The first two verses are not throwaways. I would argue they are important. It's Paul's greeting to the Ephesian church. And notice he says, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are the saints? Those are all the men and women, the believers of the Ephesian church. He says they are faithful in Jesus, so he's writing to believers, and this is what he says, okay, verse 3. He says, blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Do you hear the language of God's sovereign will? Even as He chose us before the foundation of the world. His plan, when did it exist? Before the world was even made. That God's sovereign plan and His um, eternal perspective outside of time, that He had a plan before the foundation of the world. Before you existed, before even the world existed, there was God, and in His eternality, He had a plan. What was His plan? Well, His plan was to bless us. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we should bless the Lord. Why? Because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. First thing you need to know about God's plan is to bless us. Now, what does it mean to bless? What does it mean to bless someone? A blessing is a gift. It's giving somebody a gift. At Christmas, you probably gave lots of blessings, small little blessings wrapped in paper, right, to your kids. It's a gift, right? But more than just a gift, it also could be seen as a miraculous gift. I don't know how many of the gifts you gave this Christmas were miraculous. But something that is a gift unlike any other gift you've ever been given. Or unlike any other gift you'd even be able to give, it's a miraculous gift. It's the kind of gift that changes somebody's life. The word blessing, the Greek, I'm going to read this word to you. Normally, I don't always just spout Greek so you think I'm smart. That's not my plan, usually. But I want you to listen to what this word sounds like. All right, you ready? Eulogia. It's the word blessing in Greek. Eulogia. What does that sound like? Eulogy. What's a eulogy? It's blessing somebody's memory, making them worthy of praise, making them praiseworthy. So for God to bless us means he's giving us a miraculous gift that's going to change everything about our life, that's going to make us worthy of praise. What kind of blessing looks like that? He tells us. Look at verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. What did God bless us with? He blessed us with holiness. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking right now. What kind of blessing is that? Bless me with holiness? It seems like that means he blessed me with a bunch of rules. It seems like that, that means he, the gift that he's changed, that's going to change me, that... This gift that he's given me is constricting. It's the law. What kind of blessing is that? I want you to think about what holiness really means. Genesis 1 tells us that you and I have been made in the image of God. All people, all human beings have been made in his image. That means God has endowed us with his very character. This is why the Old Testament gives us this command that we are to be holy as God is holy. Why? Because we're made in his image. God is holy. 
He is set apart. He is altogether different. Therefore, as is created people, we are called to be holy. And so as we talk about this this morning, I want to give you a vision of holiness that is much different than moralism, much different than rules. That when it says that we've been blessed with holiness, it's not that we've been blessed with a bunch of rules in order to follow out of a sense of duty or moralism, but we've been blessed with holiness. In other words, we've been blessed with the very character of God. We've been blessed to be set apart, to be different than the world around us. And yes, that's going to require not just you following a bunch of rules. It's actually going to require you giving over your entire life. Every aspect of who you are to be set apart, to be holy, to be made different. And what I want you to see about this is is this is God's plan for you. In other words, this morning, do you feel particularly holy? Do you feel that you've been set apart or different? Do you feel that you, spiritually speaking, are righteous? Do you feel holy? If you're going to be honest, like me, the answer to that is no. Here's what you need to know. This is God's plan for you. And even though, as Paul says in Romans, that every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, even though that the reality is day in and day out, we are living less than holy lives. God's plan for you is that you'd be conformed into his image. And so this morning, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, the Bible says you've been given the Holy Spirit who is now working the holiness of God into your very heart. And that you are being conformed into his image. And here's the good news. That's his plan, his sovereign plan. In other words, not even you can get in the way of that. Do you understand that, Christian? You can't even get in the way of that. By his sovereign plan, he is making you holy until one day when you stand before him, you will be glorified. You will be made holy as you stand face to face before a holy God. Not because of you, but because of him. That's the second thing. First, his plan is to bless us. Second, his plan is to love us. His plan is to love us. I want you to look at verse 5. I'm going to start at the very end of verse 4. Paul says this, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So again, Notice this language is continuing. As you read the book of Ephesians, you'll notice themes and you'll notice an argument being built. So notice this idea of his plan is continuing. In love, he predestined. We'll talk about that word in just a second. And then verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved. So he is now he's continuing the theme of blessing. Right? God's plan is to bless you. But what does this plan look like? Well, Paul here uses a word. It's a word that, depending on your theological side of the fence, you either are really glad it's here or you hate that it's here. Either way, all of us have to wrestle with the fact that it it is here. And it's the word predestined. What do you do with a word like predestination? 
destined, think about it, destiny, fate, predetermined. In other words, that this has been determined beforehand by God. In theological terms, you have entire denominations, entire schools of thought, entire theological systems built around how you understand this word. And even for a Presbyterian church like this, I have no doubt that in this room we have as many perspectives on that word as there are men in this room. So what do we do with a word like predestination? A lot of the arguments against the doctrine of predestination, that God has predestined all things to come about, are things like this. Well, that seems to make God kind of aloof. That makes him very cold, very calculated. That, that seems like if, if everything is predestined by God, then why even bother? Why even try to be holy? Why even tell others about Jesus? Well, all of those arguments against predestination are assuming that the doctrine of predestination is like fatalism. It's putting it in the same category that the Greeks put fate into. But what I want you to see this morning is that is not how Paul thinks about predestination. Yes, predestination understands that God is sovereign over all things and has predetermined all things and has a plan for all things, a plan that he will bring to pass. But there are two words, two very important words before it says he predestined that you cannot overlook. And they're the last two words of verse 4. I want you to look back at your sheet. In love. He predestined us as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, in love. One of the questions I want you to wrestle with at your tables this morning is how is the doctrine of predestination really a doctrine of love? Predestination has more to do with the love of God than it has to do with this cold, maniacal, manipulative God who's just pulling the strings of a bunch of puppets. It has to do with a relational God who loved us before the foundation of the world. What does that mean for us as men this morning? It's what the, this is what that means. God loved you first. It's what John tells us in his letter. God loved you first. Well, what does that mean? Before what? God loved you before you existed. God loved you before the world existed. Part of his plan for you was built out of his love. That means that he loved you before you loved him. Let me say that again. God loved you before you loved him, or more importantly, before you failed to love him. God loved you. What that means is God loves you this morning not because you love him. The idea that God loved us first means he's pursuing us. He is not a responsive God. And so the beauty of the gospel and what we believe is that, look, God is not responding to our love for him. And if we love him enough, he's going to love us return. And if we fail to love him, then he's going to fail to love us. No, it's the complete opposite. 
He loved you first. In love, he predestined you. His love existed before yours ever did. Which means before you ever committed any sin, he loved you. He loved you. Before you ever came to faith, he loved you. In terms of the cross, this is what that means for you and me. It means God does not love you because Jesus died. I think so often we think, I am wretched, I am sinful, and God hates me. Because of my sin, God the Father is completely opposed to me. And so he sent the Son to die for me so that now he would love me. But that's not what the Bible says. Again, here in Ephesians, it says, In love he predestined you to be adopted as sons. But I want you to think of the verse of all verses, John 3.16. If you've grown up in church, you've heard it. If you've grown up outside of church, odds are you at least have heard that reference before. John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Why did he send his son? Because he loved the world. He loved you first. In love, he predestined us to do what? To be adopted as sons. He has called you to be his own son. Men, do you understand what it means to be a son? In a room like this, I have no doubt there are many broken relationships with fathers this morning. And so the reality is, is for a lot of us, the idea of being a son and having a father is very broken. Uh, that metaphor doesn't quite translate. But what I want you to see is that God is a good father who loved you first and will stop at nothing to pour out his love on you. And so predestination means that he's predetermined to love you. And he loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. He has predetermined to love you in all things to the bitter end. Why? Because you're his son. Because in love, he predestined you to be adopted as sons. So much so that he sent his own son to die in your place so that you and I who were once orphaned could become his sons. Lastly, the final thing I want to talk about, God's plan His plan is to lavish us with grace. I want you to look at verse 7. It says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. I mean, again, if you need any kind of picture of God's love for us, look at the cross. And the love that his son showed by willingly laying his life down on the cross for you. There is no greater love than this than someone who had laid down his life for his friends from the Gospel of John, right? This, this, is, this is good news for us this morning. He has redeemed us by his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. As we end this morning, just a couple things I want you to notice. The first is this. His plan is to lavish us with the riches 
of his grace. I want you to think about the word lavish means. Right? To pour out. To be excessively generous. Right? Again, John describes it in this way, that we have been given grace upon grace in Christ Jesus. In the Greek, that literally means that we've been given grace in a place where we've already been given grace. All right, for those of you who are grandfathers this morning, it's what you do at Christmas against the will of your kids. You lavish your grandchildren with gifts. I know this because I'm a father. It doesn't matter how much we tell our parents, please stop giving them so many gifts. We're the ones who have to deal with them after you guys leave. They still lavish them with more gifts upon gifts upon gifts. This is what our Father has done for us. He's lavished us with grace when He's already given us grace. He's giving us grace in a place where grace has already been given. He has lavished us, Paul says, with the riches of His grace. That this grace, this blessing, this gift, right, it's luxurious, It's a treasure. It's something to prize. And like any gift, it's something that is hard for us to receive. Especially if you really believe and take Paul at his word, which I think we should this morning, that God is lavishing us with grace. So there's two sides to this. One side is that, if we're going to be honest, it's hard for us to truly receive. The idea that we would somehow deserve grace or grace has already been given is a difficult concept. And it should be because the truth is, is you don't deserve it. And that's the whole point. That's what grace is. So this morning, I want you to wrestle with that. If that feels like a tension in your soul, I want you to leave it there and wrestle with it. Why is it that it's hard for you to receive the grace of God? And wherever you chase that rabbit, down into the parts of your soul, my guess is because deep down, you're trying somehow to earn his favor, some way, somehow. But the other flip side to all of this, why would God give us grace where grace has already been given? Why would he lavish us with such generosity to give us grace? Is Because also, if we're going to be honest, brothers, don't we need that? In other words, if he's just giving us one little ounce of grace that he gave us a long time ago, if you're like me, you've already used that grace up, haven't you? The reality is we need grace upon grace upon grace because we need grace every single day. And this is the good news. God's grace for you is not just a small amount that was there on the first day that you came to know him as your Lord and Savior but his grace for you now continues every single day until the day that he calls you home. It is grace upon grace. It's grace that he has lavished upon you. Why? Paul tells us, verse 9 and 10, because he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in time, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to himself, things on heaven and things on earth. God has a plan, a plan from the fullness of time. 
Nothing can get in the way of his plan, and his plan is to lavish you with grace. In just a few verses, he'll talk about that in terms of an inheritance. That as his son, you now are, have the birthright, and you are an heir to the inheritance of God's plan. His plan to unite everything to himself. All things. All of creation, and at the center of creation, you. To unite your heart to his own so that he could lavish you with grace upon grace. What I want you to see this morning, brothers, is that God is excessively generous. And his plan, his will for your life, is that you would be united to him, so much so that you would become a son with an inheritance of unspeakable riches, the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Ephesians. Thank you for the apostle Paul who writes not only to the Ephesian church, but by your grace now writes to us, part of your church thousands of years later. We pray, Lord, that we would receive this word with open hearts, that Holy Spirit, you would work in and through it, that we would be transformed, conformed, even made holy. Lord, would you this morning give us a greater vision of your plan for us, that by the power of the death and resurrection of your Son, we might become sons, so that the stored-up inheritance of grace might become ours in Christ Jesus. We ask in his sovereign and powerful name. Amen.